Well, Happy New Year. It is good to be in 2020 as we gather together here at Northland Campus, Thornton, Fort Lupton online around God's word as we continue to worship together. If you are new with us, uh, welcome to Crossroads Church. My name is Matt Manning and I have the privilege of continuing to lead us in worship through uh, God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to go ahead and get them ready. We're going to be uh, in a couple of passages today, but specifically Isaiah 6 is where we'll land a little bit later. That one of the things about the new year that all of us experience as we enter into the new year is changes in the air, isn't it? That changes everywhere. That this is the year or this is the beginning of the year when people uh, take time to kind of reflect on their lives. We all do this. We reflect on our lives and go, what did the last life or last year look like? Is this year going to be better? Is it going to be worse? What are the things that I want to do? What are the things that I'm going to stop doing? This is the time of year when gyms start to fill up, right? And we all start to read about how to eat better and do all those sort of things. And, and this is just when it comes to the New Year's in our lives. It's just a season of change, a season of reflection and a season of looking forward. And if you've been a part of Crossroads, you know that we are familiar with change here, aren't we? That there is no lack of change happening at Crossroads Church. In fact, if you've been here the last five years, then you know that Pastor Kim, our senior pastor of 28 years, and I have been on this transition plan where he has been passing the senior leadership baton to me to become the next senior pastor. And all of that went real on January 1st of 2020. And uh, it has been a cool couple of days uh, since I took on the mantle of senior pastor at this church. I have gotten literally uh, quite a few hundred, I would say, uh, emails, text messages, some cards, like snail mail, like came to me uh, congratulating me. People are excited for what this next season looks like. And almost everywhere I go in the church, the question that's asked, of me is now that you're the senior pastor is anything different and I tell everybody yeah it's like your birthday you know something's different you're just not sure what it is yet like that's the feeling uh, that I've been walking around with as uh, the senior pastor of this church look it is incredibly humbling uh, to be called the senior pastor of this great church and like I said I know there's a lot of excitement in the air of this next season I know there's also a bit of trepidation as there would be with any senior leader who steps aside after 28 years. And so with the air of change around us, and as we enter into this new season, and by the way, I'm just praying that this new season is going to be a long season, all right? I am not yet uh, 40 years old yet. I'm only 39. I turned 40 this year, 2020. But I figure I have a good 20 or 25 years ahead of me. And so I'm praying that this season is a long, long season. But as we step into this new season with me being the senior pastor of this church, one of the things that Pastor Kim and Chris and Tim, myself, the preaching team decided last year when we were putting together the preaching schedule for this year is that it would be really good to start off 2020 with a series that we would call Heartbeat. Where I would just take four weeks through January to share my heartbeat, what drives me, what wakes me up in the morning with you. Another way of saying it is this is what you can expect from me as your senior pastor? I think that that's a good question that you need to ask. Of what is it that, that Matt's building the foundation of this ministry upon? What is it that, that gets him up in the morning? What is it that drives him in his life? See, the reality is, is that every single one of us have had experiences in our lives that influence and shape who we are, isn't it? That's true. Every single one of us has had that. Every single one of us has, has motivations and drives, these, these internal drivers inside us that, that help get us up in the morning and get us excited to, for things and, and help us move throughout the day. And when things are hard, those are the things that keep us going. 
that every single one of us have gifts that have been given to us by God, bestowed upon us, these, these things that we call spiritual gifts given to us. And when we take those external kind of experiences and those internal drives and the giftings of God and we put it all together, that those are the things that shape us, that those are the things that make us who we are. And the reality is, is that for 14 years, I've served on this staff, and that for most of you, you probably have a pretty good hunch of what drives me and what moves me. And yet what I want to do through these next four weeks is make what drives me abundantly clear. I want you to be able to see my heart as your next senior pastor. And my prayer throughout this series is that you would see a little bit how God has shaped me into my life up until this point, and that really, as we walk through this, that these next four weeks would really set the foundation for this next season as I serve you as the senior pastor of this church. And so, with all of that said, if you don't know my story, I'm going to share a little bit of that with you today. I actually grew up in this church, if you can believe it or not. My family arrived here in 1990. I was 10 years old. I was in the fourth grade without a worry in the world. Do you remember those days, like when you were in elementary school, right? And your biggest decision was ham sandwich or peanut butter and jelly for, right, for lunch. I mean, like those days, those were the good days, right? And when I landed here in 1990, Crossroads Church was not the big multi-site church that it is now. It was just a single location church here at North Glen Campus. It was about 200 to 250 people who gathered together to worship God. And in those early years, my family arrived here and we found a home here. We eventually, I got into middle school, I was a part of the youth group here. And when I was 12 years old in the sixth grade, I came to an overnight lock-in here at the church. And two friends of mine, Tony Summers and Eric Kettleson, uh, shared with me what it means to trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And at two in the morning... I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. In fact, I can point to that spot in the floor in our Canyon Cafe. Like, I can literally say, this is where I was sitting when I accepted Christ as my Savior. A year later, I was baptized right here in this baptismal at North Glen Campus by Pastor Kim. He actually had hair then. And so uh, that's, where I, that's where I professed to this church that I was a believer in Jesus. And it would be no small thing. It would not be an overstatement to say that much of my spiritual formation has happened because of this church, and specifically because of Pastor Kim. And while you may find some people who love this church as much as I do, you will not find anyone who loves this church more. It's why it's an incredible honor to be considered and to be called upon to lead this church. See, I grew up a good kid. I stayed out of trouble. I had good grades. I played hockey and baseball growing up. And while we spent nine years here in Colorado, most of my youth was actually spent moving around. Before I was at the age of 18, I had lived in seven states. That my dad was a successful businessman, kind of climbing the corporate ladder. And when I was a kid, my dream, if you were to ask me when I was a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? What I would have told you was a military pilot. Like, I wanted to, to be like... The reason that I wanted to be a pilot, to be honest with you, is because I loved the movie Top Gun, all right? And so I still do. Like, I can't wait for the next Top Gun to come out next year. Like, I love that movie. And so that was, that was what was kind of in front of me, and so that was my goal. So you can imagine my heartbreak when I was down in the Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy, and I was talking to a cadet there. I was, I was a young kid talking to a cadet about how I wanted to be a military pilot, and he was telling me about all the dues and what you had to be and what you couldn't be in order to be a pilot, and he mentioned that you cannot be a pilot if you're colorblind. 
Something about shooting at the wrong team, right? And I was heartbroken because I'm blue-green colorblind. And so all of a sudden that dream like dissipated and it was gone. And like most of us as kids, we move on. And by the time I got into high school, I had a knack for math. I was really good at design. I had won some awards for my design. And I decided what would kind of be a cool career path for me is to be a civil engineer. In fact, my dream was to build bridges, big, beautiful bridges, like the Golden State Bridge. Like that's, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And so when I was a junior in high school, I was living in Indiana at the time. And uh, in that area of, of the United States, there's a great engineering school called Northwestern University in Illinois there. And I applied to Northwestern and, and I got a letter of acceptance and I was super pumped because Northwestern is where I was going to go to school. And then a few weeks later, something really interesting happened. I got another letter from Northwestern saying, we're sorry, we made a huge mistake. We don't actually have any room for your program. Like, you're the one too many guys. We're rescinding our offer to you. Like, who happened? How does that happen, right? So from my junior year to my senior year, we moved from Indiana to Omaha. We landed in Omaha. And there in Omaha is the University of Nebraska, Omaha. And they have a great engineering program. And I thought, well, I'll just go there. I'll get my engineering degree there. And so I filled out the application, I sent the paperwork off, they cashed my check, I never got an acceptance letter. A few weeks later, I called them and said, hey, my name's Matt Manning, you cashed my check, just wondering if I got accepted to the school. And the lady starts panicking because they can't find me anywhere in the system. Like, they've lost all of my paperwork. And they cashed my check, but they didn't bother to accept me into the program. And she goes, I'm so sorry, we don't have any room for you. Our program is entirely full. And so here I am, it's April of my senior year of high school. I have good grades, great test scores, and this crazy ability not to get accepted into school, right? <laughs> and so, uh, in Omaha, we attended this church called Brookside. And I was active in the youth group, and within that youth group, we had uh, small groups, we had life groups, and my life group leader was a guy named Mikey Garcia. Mikey Garcia was a college student, and he also worked as an admissions counselor for a small Christian college university there in Omaha, Nebraska. And one day after group, he was asking me about my college plans, and I just shared my frustrations with him and, and kind of just, just really frustrated that I couldn't get into school and didn't understand what was going on. And he looked at me and he said, have you ever considered Christian education? And I said, man, I want to be an engineer. No, right? And, and he said, well, you have good grades, and with your test scores, I think we could get some scholarships. You should just check out the campus. And so we went down to the campus, and I spent a day, kind of checked it out, and I decided, you know what? Like, I'll do this for a year. I'll go to this college. I'll get some scholarships. I'll get my generals out of the way. I'll study the Bible. I'm a believer. Studying the Bible is kind of cool. And I'll do that. And what I found out is that they had a co-op program with the University of Nebraska Omaha for engineering. And so I could do this. And then my sophomore year, I could kind of slide in uh, to the program at UNO and be on my way in terms of, of becoming a civil engineer. And so I applied to Grace University. I got accepted. I waited anxiously to be let down. It never happened. And in uh, that August, I moved into the dorms at Grace University. Now, from, the, from my door where we lived in Omaha, from my front door to the dorms at Grace University was 18 minutes, all right? So I wasn't like a long way from home. I was 18 minutes away. But when my mom and dad dropped me off at college, my mom was just sobbing. Like, she was so sad. Her oldest son was leaving for college. And I just looked at her with all the sincerity that I could, and I said, Mom, don't worry, I'll come home because I need someone to do my laundry. <laughs> and everything was better after that, all right? 
So at Grace University, the freshmen showed up about a week before everybody else did to kind of get acclimated to the college. There was a few things of intake that had to be done. And one of the things that happened at Grace University, all the freshmen had to take this test on biblical competency. And when the proctors walked into this room, this big room full of freshmen, these two proctors walked in to give the test to us. And they said, look, you'll take this test two times. You'll take it today as freshmen, and then when you graduate, you'll take it again. And this just helps us see where we're at, how the training's going, how we're doing as a school in training you in the scriptures. And then after they said that, they stressed that don't sweat what you get on your first test. Like, like this is just to see where you're at. This is just baseline, so don't stress this out, which was good because I scored the lowest in the freshman class. Like, literally, I was the dumbest Bible student in the college, right? And so that's how, that's how all that got started. And even though they said that it wouldn't be counted against you, somehow I got enrolled into a 7.30 a.m. class my freshman year called hermeneutics. If you don't know what hermeneutics means, it just means this. This is how you study the Bible. Get this kid some help, all right? And so at 7.30 a.m. my freshman year, every day I had to wake up and go to this class to learn how to study the Bible. And it was in this class during the very first week we had an assignment where we had to read a book called Desiring God. And this book absolutely changed my world. It rocked my world. Seriously, I read that first chapter five times. I read that chapter five times. And I moved from rejection to angst to anger to openness to ultimately acceptance and agreement of what that book was saying. See, this book was all about the glory of God. And when my eyes were opened to his glory, I was forever changed. I mean, have you ever had those moments in your life? Those moments in your life when God reveals something so grand, so spectacular, so, so revolutionary to you that it's not like you just take a step forward in your faith, but it's like you leaped into a whole nother building. Like God reveals something like so big to you and it changes you so much that you were forever different. Well, that's what happened my freshman year of college, that my faith changed in a remarkable way. And now there, there was this desire in me that had never been there before. Truthfully, it had never been there before. But now there was this desire, this heartbeat for God's glory to be displayed in my life. And one of the verses that became so substantial to my life was uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where Paul is writing and he writes this. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do. Do it for the glory of God. And that verse became a life verse for me. It became a, a verse that had such great impact on me. If you don't know the kind of the context of 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthian church is, is getting this letter from the Apostle Paul, and the church is fighting. They're actually in the midst of a fight, and what they're fighting over is food, all right? If there was anything so dumb a church could fight over, it's this right here, all right? They're fighting over food, what foods they should eat and shouldn't eat, and Paul kind of settles the discussion and says, hey, look, 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 look. Whether you're eating or drinking, whatever it is that you do, do it for the glory of God. And in the midst of this letter, Paul drops this one thing, this, this line that is so big, so awesome. And honestly, for my entire life, had been so completely lost on me. Let me explain it this way. That when we hear the phrase, glory of God... That, that there should be, we should be immediately captured by it. And yet the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes when we hear the glory of God, it fails to elicit any kind of response into us. 
And the reason that it fails to elicit any kind of response is because while we talk about glory in church a whole lot, it's not something that we really understand. It's not something that we're really clear on what it means, which is a problem because what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that Paul is giving us a hint to our purpose. And he says, your purpose is wrapped around glory. It's wrapped around glory. That every single one of us has this yearning in our hearts for something more, don't we? That every single one of us has, has this longing to be a part of something bigger than we are. That every single one of us has this, has this desire to have purpose in this life. And Paul says, your purpose in this world is tied to glory. We need to understand glory. And yet what's so hard for us, what's so hard for us is that when it comes to defining glory, it's a difficult word to wrap our minds around. It's difficult for us to, to get a grab a hold of. I think this is when I was reading the book Desiring God my freshman year in college, why I struggled so much with that book. Because I could not wrap my mind around glory. I, I couldn't put my arms around it. And it wasn't until I understood another word, the word holy, is when, I, when it all clicked for me. And so if you have your Bibles, like I said, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have this beautiful scene. It's a famous scene in the scriptures. You have Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet. He's one of the major prophets, like one of the big dudes of the Old Testament, right? Everybody looked to him in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture. And for a moment in, he, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a glimpse of heaven. For a moment, God takes the curtains of eternity and he pulls them back. And for this moment, just this moment, Isaiah is invited into the throne room of God. And as he enters into this throne room, he sees God sitting on the throne and he sees angels all around the throne. And they're, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, holy, you have been rightfully taught, means to be separate. It means to be distinct. And in the Hebrew culture, the word holy, the Hebrew word that's translated holy for us, is a word that was not like a religious word. It was just a common word that meant separate. The way that we would use it today, if we still used it in the same way, is like this. That North Glen is holy from Thornton. That Thornton campus is holy from Fort Lupton campus. That North Glen is distinct. It's separate from Thornton. That Thornton is separate. It's distinct from Fort Lupton. That these are individual campuses. That that's the way that the Hebrew culture used the word holy. And yet what happened is that when holy started to be used in reference to God, what it started to mean is that God is in a class all by himself. That's the way the Bible uses the word holy. That God is in a, in a class all by himself. It means that God is, is infinitely valuable because he's one of a kind. That God is of extreme worth and value. That his holiness means that he is utterly unique. That he is, that he is pure. That he is infinitely pure. That he is transcending godness. That holiness, that holiness, when the Bible says that God is holy, what it's saying is that God as God is what, what God is, as God, he is what nothing else is. That's holiness. That his beauty is, is more beautiful than, than the waters of the oceans or the sands of the deserts or the sunsets over the mass mountains, the splendor of the galaxies in the universe, that scripturally speaking, holiness is what God is as God that nothing else is. And so when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6 here, 
is invited into the throne room and he gets a glimpse of what that looks like. He sees the angels and all of the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And the next thing that we would expect them to say is that the whole world is full of his holiness. And yet that's not what Isaiah writes for us. Look what he says, that as he enters into the throne room, verse 3, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's full of his glory. Now, if the whole world is full of his glory, then glory has to be the going public of God's holiness, of his greatness, of his worth. That glory is the way that God puts his holiness on display, his distinctness, his, his, his value for all of us to see, for all of us to understand, for all of us to grasp. That the glory of God is the evident beauty of his holiness. Now listen to this. That God's chief purpose, his number one purpose, is to display his glory for all of us to see. That God's number one purpose is to display his awesomeness and his worth and his value in this world. That one of my favorite scriptures is, is Psalm 19.1. It goes like this, that the heavens, David's writing this, King David, he says, the heavens declare the glories of God. In the skies, they proclaim his handiwork. What does it mean? It means that God is shouting at us. He's shouting at us from the clouds. He's shouting at us from the blue expanses of the skies. He shouts with the fiery sunsets of the mountains. He's saying, look at me. Look at my glory. I'm glorious. Look at my holiness. Open your eyes. See, God has given us eyes to see. And what he wants us to see most in this world is his holiness. He, he wants us to experience his glory. And the question is, is, do you see it? Do you long for it? Do you yearn for it in your life? Above all else. Because Paul's telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that this is our purpose. This is what we should be all about. That whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is that you do, Whatever you do in your vocation, whatever you do in, in your marriage and in your singleness, whatever you do as parents, whatever you do as friends, whatever you do in your recreation, whatever you do in this life, do it to the glory of God. Do it for the display of God's worth. Do it for the display of God's value. Do it for that, that everything in this life begins with and ends with God's glory. Now listen, this was a game changer for me. That that freshman year of college, everything changed when I started to realize this. Because as I pondered these thoughts and as I, and as I thought about the glory of God, what I come to realize was that I would wander aimlessly through this life if I was never able to see the greatness of God and know why God created me. See, every single one of us was created in the image of God. Every single one of us are created in the image of God so that we would image forth his glory into this world. That you can think of yourselves made as beautiful diamonds, refracting and reflecting the light of God's holiness so that his glory could be shown into all of this life. This is why you were made. This is why I was made. 
This is why we were made, that this is our purpose. And so I think when we get into the New Testament and we see Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, do you remember this? The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, man, you pray like no one we've ever seen. Would you teach us to pray? And Jesus says, yeah, pray like this, Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That the very first thing that, that Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, he says, desire this first, that God's name be hallowed. Father, cause your name to be hallowed. Do whatever you must do in me, in my family, in my church, in my neighborhood, in my world, for your name to be hallowed. Father in heaven, act on this. God, make it be. Hallowed be your name. That's what Jesus taught us to pray first. That's what he aspires. That's what he said. You aspire to this first. This should be your first petition when you pray. Father, hallowed be your name. And the question that we have to ask, or that you should be asking maybe, is this, is what does hallowing have to do with God's glory? Well, hallowing means to value as holy. Hallowing means to esteem as holy. To treasure as holy. It's what Isaiah walked into in Isaiah chapter 6. As he sees the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. That Isaiah walks into this moment and he's watching the hallowing of God's name by the angels. And Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray, he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, first thing on your list is join the angels. Join the angels and raise your hands and say, hallowed be your name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so the question that comes to us then is what does it mean to bring glory to God? How do, I, how do I show glory in everything that I do? How do I display this glory? Which is a really good question, and ironically, most all of us already know how to do it. And the reason that we know how to do it is because we bring glory to ordinary things in our lives all the time. And it's not too dissimilar, the way that we bring glory to things in our lives, in the way that we're to bring glory to God. Let me give you a couple of examples. We just came off of Christmas, and one of the things in the Manning family that we just love about Christmas is that prime rib goes on sale. Anybody with me? Yeah? Yeah, prime rib goes on sale. And we love prime rib. In fact, when my son Theo, he's 11 years old, that when he eats prime rib, it is a worshipful experience for him, all right? Like we have prime rib and he, he cuts off his first piece and he eats it. And if I made it after his first bite, he looks at me and he goes, Dad, how do you make it so good? Right? I mean, I mean, we just love prime rib. It's just a worshipful experience for my, my son. Now, if I was to invite you over and I made prime rib for you, how would you glorify that meal? Would you come over and, and go, oh, man, I, I, we're having prime rib tonight. Let me throw on my apron. I'm going to put some spices on this. I'm going to dress it. I'm going to make this real good for you. No, 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 no. You wouldn't do that, right? You would glorify this great meal by eating it and feeling satisfied and content and going, oh, man, that was so great. Matt, how do you make it so good? Right? Like, that's bringing glory to a prime real meal. It's pleasure. In fact, when you take pleasure from it, you show how valuable and how worthy it is, isn't it? Not too dissimilar from the way that we bring glory to God. Let me give you another example. How do you glorify art in your life? 
During this Advent season, we asked everyone to, to join with us in creating kind of an art project that we would display at all of our churches. And some of the, at some of our locations, you can still see all of these hangings. Hundreds of you turned in art projects where, where you put together something from the Advent season and you displayed it in art. Well, how do you bring glory to that art? Do you walk up to it and go, oh, oh give me my paintbrush. I'm going to fix this, right? I'm, I'm going to paint on this. I'm going to do some things with this. And, and I'm going to make this better. No, no, you would never do that. No, the way that you bring glory to art is you go, hey, hey come, come with me. I want to show you the one that I did. Look at what I did. Look what I was trying to, to convey. Look what I was trying to say. This is, this is my work. You take pleasure in it. You show it off to other people. You, 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 you excitedly talk about it to your friends. That you bring glory to it. How about a third example for you? How, do you? how do you bring glory to someone's generosity in your life? How do you, how do you go about doing that? Suppose that this last Christmas season, that someone was exceedingly generous to you. And their generosity just kind of spilled over out of their lives onto you in kindness and, and in blessing this Christmas season. How would you glorify that generosity? How would you glorify that quality in them? Would you try to pay them back? No. <laughs> that would just turn their gift into a business deal, wouldn't it? Would you, try to, would you try to trade them? No, you wouldn't try to trade them. That the way that you would glorify that quality or glorify that person is with genuine gratitude. That you would take pleasure in what they gave you. Look, if someone gave you a billion dollars as you walked out of church today, it would not be a burden to fall and to say thank you for this, right? It would not be a burden to take pleasure in that. You would not complain about that. You would be joyful. You would, it would be pleasurable. It wouldn't be a hardship in this. That all of these examples help us understand and see what glorifying God means in our life. That at the end of the day, the way that we bring glory to God, the way that we show off His holiness, His extreme worth and value, is by finding our pleasure in Him, by enjoying him, that we bring glory to God by enjoying him as a person. That's far too often we think of God as something out there that's in this cosmic space that kind of wound this world up and sent it into motion. And we forget that God is a person and that we can talk to him and that we can listen. And at times he whispers to us and that we can have experiences with him that move us. That God isn't just a thing out there, that God is a, a person that we can experience and enjoy. And one of the things that we, that we enjoy from God is the gifts that he gives us, don't we? I mean, those moments of peace, those encouraging words, those people in your life who, who lift you up, those moments when his presence just washes over us, those, those moments when you laugh so hard you're going to pee yourself, like all of those are good gifts given to us by God. They're beautiful gifts. But so is the suffering, isn't it, that makes us stronger? And the tears that draw you to him? And the failures that you go through knowing that he's walking with you? And the trials in your life that create a steadfastness of faith? That all of those are beautiful gifts that God gives us too, to be enjoyed, to take pleasure in. That we bring glory to God by, by enjoying him as our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer. Look, when we come to realize that Jesus stepped out of heaven, putting aside his glory, 
coming onto this earth to die so that we could partake in the glory, that changes everything. That changes it everything. That that isn't a, a place where it feels like a burden to carry. No, in that moment when we realize what Jesus did on our behalf so that we could partake in the glory of God, it becomes a tremendous blessing in our life that gratitude fills our heart. And it's not a burden to eat, drink for the glory of God. It's not a burden to live in our marriages and our singleness for the glory of God. It's not a burden to go to work every day for the glory of God. It's not a burden to parent to the glory of God. It's not a burden to be enjoying this recreation of this life for the glory of God. It's not a burden to us. It's something that we come to enjoy. That bringing glory to God is delighting yourself in him. To show this world how awesome and valuable and worthy God actually is. And as I begin my season as senior pastor here of this great church, I just need you to know that at the very base of the foundation is God's glory. That I have no dreams of becoming famous or some rock star pastor. That at the end of the day, my only hope and my only dream is that this church, and really God's big C church, moves away in culture from this, from this reputation that we have of being bigots and hateful and being known for the things that, that we stand against and that rather when the people in this culture would look at the bride of Christ, the church, that they would see how awesome and valuable and worthy God is. And I just believe that when the church shows off God's glory to the world, that the world won't be able to help but come and see what's going on. Will you pray with me, Father? Lord, help us be a church that displays your glory. Lord, we want to, to speak of your holiness, your awesomeness, your worthiness, your distinctness. God, we want that to flow out of us in such ways that it changes us and our families and our communities and our neighborhood and ultimately this world. God, we want to join with the choir of angels that sit around your throne, hallowing your name, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, let that be, let that be the prayer of our lips every day of our life. Let that be our purpose that drives us. Let that be the thing that gets us up in the morning, is that on this day, whatever I do, I do it for your glory. God, I know that there's some, Lord, here at church today in these, in these rooms that we worship in. And Lord, they've wandered into this space. And Lord, maybe they wandered in wondering what purpose is, what purpose is about, what this, what this yearning in their heart is all about that they just seem to cannot get away from. Lord, through your word, you revealed to them today that, that their purpose is to bring glory. And so God, as you speak to their hearts now, Lord, maybe for the first time in their life, they see you the way that you need to be seen. Lord, maybe for the first time, they see that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And they realize that Jesus came, giving up his glory so that they could participate in glory with you by dying on the cross for their sins and offering life. Lord, and your promise to us is that if we confess that with our mouths, that you're Lord, 
and we believe it in our hearts. God, it's so interesting that, that you use the organ heart there. Not the organ of doing, but the organ of delighting. That if we delight in you, then you welcome us into your family. God, for the people that are making that decision right now in their lives, Lord, declaring you as Savior, delighting in you, Lord, I know heaven is excited as they enter into your family, and so are we. God, we want to see your glory in this world. We pray it in your name, and all of God's people said, amen. Wonderful. Thanks, Pat.